0: Good morning! You're listening to 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University, live from the Richard Philip Cavalero Studio South. Welcome to the Monday edition of Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call, where we're talking Long Island life, national news, and international issues. I'm your host, Matt McDermott, joined today by my co-host, Nathan Ritchie, and my reporter, Matthew DiDomenico. Today, we're going to be discussing the Women's March in Mineola, as well as Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This latter topic we will be discussing with Wendy Linsalata, Executive Director of Long Island Against Domestic Violence, a nonprofit organization combating domestic violence on the island. But first things first, Nathan, Matthew, how are you guys today?
1: I'm great. I'm doing well. Uh, you know, obviously tired. We, we say this every week, I feel like, and it's going to be the same case for uh, <laughs> the weeks to come. Everyone's going to say they're tired when they come in, but that's just the life of being a college student.
0: That's and the life of being a college student. It's also part and parcel of hosting a morning show. <laughs> yes, of
1: course. Matt, uh,
0: oh, I apologize.
1: Oh, no, I was going to introduce Matt. Yeah. How are you doing, Matt?
2: Well, uh, it's really great to be on for the first time with you guys. was really excited to do this. Um, shot out of bed. Uh, got no coffee on me, but we're okay. You know what I mean? All is good. And I'm ready to do this with you guys. Really, really happy to uh, be
0: here. Matt, it's always really fun addressing you because it's almost like addressing myself. Like whenever I like text you or like call you or like talk to you, you know, it's like, hi, Matt, you know, and it's like, hi, Matt. It's like kind of like this (laughs) feedback loop of Matt's that like never ends
2: absolutely (laughs) it's it's really funny because i feel like literally within the first day we almost like made like a bit out of it yeah where it was like hi matt hello matt Matt. how you doing Matt? just fine matt and and you know
0: here we are now it's like meeting another matt is just like wonderful absolutely there's a lot
2: of us in the world
0: yeah Yeah. so matthew is going to be doing a report later in the show about the britney spears conservatorship ending so stay tuned for that it's going to be a wonderful one but for right now we're going to move on to our first story which is about national domestic violence awareness month october 1st marked the beginning of national domestic violence awareness month domestic violence which is known as domestic abuse family violence or intimate partner violence is defined by the united nations as a pattern of behavior in any relationship that is used to gain or maintain power or control over an intimate partner domestic abuse can be physical sexual emotional economic or psychological although specific numbers vary from state to state nationally is that it is estimated that one in three women and one in four men will be subjected to some form of violence physical violence by their partner now this awareness month has existed since 1989 but and i think this is a good thing but i think it might be more publicized this year in the aftermath of the death of gabby petito and i think that is a really probably the only thing you could say is a bright spot that came out of that whole tragedy beyond words that we spoke about last show actually and i think that that's a good thing. The fact that we're all talking about this, and the fact that this is kind of in the forefront of everybody's minds, you know, especially after that video that um, Utah police put out regarding, um, unfortunately, Gabby Petito's death.
1: Right, and we're seeing uh, a huge uh, foundation, or the huge impact of this foundation, the Gabby Petito Foundation, which was started by her parents, that have that has already had such a huge impact on uh, the United States, on the world, in terms of uh, outreach to victims of domestic violence and helping them speak out, which is really important, obviously, in, in, in kind of quelling uh, these statistics of domestic violence like you were talking about.
0: Yeah, let's talk about those statistics, actually, because I mentioned the numbers for domestic violence do tend to vary from state to state. You know, they're not going to be the same in New York as they are in, say, California and vice versa. In New York, 31.7% of women and 29% of men have been subjected to some form of physical violence by an intimate partner. Domestic violence accounts for, all, for 20% of all violent crime in New York State. Now, that also, and this is a sad thought that we're actually going to get into later when we have our interview with Miss Linsalata, but it's a sad thought because I'm wondering how, many, how much of that is reported, and like, how much does that underreporting disparity affect those numbers that we just heard about? You know, I'm, I'm afraid that it would be more, and that's, that's really concerning and a very sad thought.
1: Right. And, and, you know, quick question, like what, why do you think it varies state from state to state?
0: That's a good question. I think that um, we have certainly a lot of things that, um, here's the thing, because on this show, we often talk about the disparities between states and between certain concepts and the cultures between each state. So I think that's the thing. You know, I think in certain parts of the country, there's, I don't want to say more acceptable culture, because it's not acceptable really anywhere. But there's more people willing to turn a blind eye to that kind of abuse. Um, I think that in certain parts of the country, unfortunately, there's less of an infrastructure in place to help those people that are being affected by domestic violence. I think that if you're in a smaller community, unfortunately, where everybody knows each other, there's blessings in that, to be sure. You know, it's nice to know your neighbors, nice to know everybody in your town. But there's curses in that that nobody really talks about in the sense that nobody wants to speak up if somebody's being abused or if somebody's being mistreated because everybody knows each other. And you don't want word getting around like, oh you know, so-and-so ratted out the Smith couple down the street, even though it's not that, you know, but it's the perception of that is there. And uh, Matthew, I saw you wanted to say something. Um, what did what was going on there?
2: Well, you actually um, put, uh, pressed upon a point that, that I was literally just thinking about was, I think it really is culture-based from state to state. Um, especially, um, I, I feel like in twenty twenty one, over you know slash twenty twenty, with the whole um, you know COVID pandemic that happened, I think you really got to see a, a real separation of of, of the uh, ideologies of states as far as um, you know uh, a group of people that were ready for um, who were ready for a vaccine versus people who weren't, people who you know were against masks versus people who were for them, and I think. Now this is kind of an, uh, another example of, you know, the the country, obviously being you know together in fifty states, but having a lot of different cultures and ideologies and ways of living, and and customs that you know have been passed down from parent to child, parent to child, and I think this is just another aspect of them, uh, aspect of it, despite uh, social media, I think playing, uh, and you know just general. Um, technology that we're given now playing such a huge role as far as um having things you know having you know possible um possible like themes of 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 abuse or or whatever it may be come to light because of social media and you know the me too To movement and 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 stuff along those lines I still do think there are um there are things holding people back from perhaps um you know being completely honest with you know friends family or or whoever about what is going on in um their relationship
0: No absolutely I think that's a really good point to make and I do want to kind of jump off a point that Matthew made Um, The COVID-19 pandemic, you know, we spoke about it in terms of how it highlighted the disparity between states. But I also want to talk about, you know, how it affects domestic violence statistics, because unfortunately, when COVID hit and when everything was quarantined, a lot of those domestic abuse shelters, a lot of those domestic violence shelters, all those things were quarantined with those states. I mean, not with those states, but with other businesses and with other state uh, functions. So when that happened, there was less resources available to those already caught in abusive uh, relationships. And I feel like that was kind of a recipe for disaster, seeing as, you know, those already in abusive relationships were already in enough stress. And those the people who were abusing those people were put in a very, very stressful situation, which I'm sure does not help anybody in that situation. So I think COVID, out of everything, had a really bad impact on domestic violence. I actually read an article about this yesterday, not about COVID, but about in the United Kingdom, they have a hotline set up for people who think they're about to... um, you know, abuse their spouses or abuse their significant others to call. And, you know, when I was reading that, or when I first heard that, I was kind of like, okay, you know, whatever, like, I'm sure the people that are about to do that aren't going to reach out for help anytime soon. But the uh, results of that were surprising, because people were calling the hotline in tears and like, I don't want to hurt people and stuff like that. So, and we're going to talk about this more with, um, with Miss Linsalata. but I feel like there's a very narrow image of domestic violence in this country, at least, you know, it's very like, Everybody has this one image in their head, you know, the guy in like the uh, tank top with the spaghetti stain on his his wife beater, you know, beating his wife. But that's really not how it happens. I mean, it may happen like that, but that's not the only way it happens. There's a million forms of domestic violence. There's a million forms of domestic abuse. You know, like I said, you know, it could be economic. You could be withholding funds from your significant other so they can't leave. You could be doing all these things to control your significant other. And it's really a sad thing because people like i said people view this in like a very one dimensional sense but it very much is not
1: right yeah and even among uh children too that's something that really isn't there's not much of a focus on in uh in terms when we talk about domestic violence uh because that is such i feel like that's such a closed in issue because uh parents and guardians have such a control over their children's internet use, their social media use, and that prevents them from having these outlets to be able to speak out, like uh like Matt was like Matt D. Dominico was talking about. Sorry, I have to di- I have to differentiate between Matts. And yeah, you gotta right.
0: like wonder like which Matt? Matt D. Dominico, <laughs> Matt McDermott. What's going on here?
1: <laughs> right. Um. Uh, but like you was talking about with the Me Too movement, Uh and that movement on social media and how people were able to help each other not only normalize speaking out, not only speak out, but to be able to help recover from uh, domestic violence, from sexual assault, issues like that. And we're not seeing that very much uh, at least reported uh, for children that are victims of abuse of domestic violence, uh, either
0: if their parents are fighting or if, that's direct abuse to them if their parents are abusing them. No, absolutely. And I think bouncing off of that, you know, the point of children being affected by domestic violence and intimate partner violence and family violence, I think that, the like we've been saying this entire time, this infrastructure that's been designed to help these kids and to help these people hasn't been working on a scale that it should you know on the on the simple basis of everything was shut down for a while and now that everything isn't shut down it's working on a limited capacity and you know I'm not here to just pass judgment on the shutdowns you know that's not the point of this story I'm the point is it it makes this whole situation that was already almost reaching crisis levels in the United States pretty much tip the edge and go into a to to a point where we can't even conceive of how widespread it is i i was talking to a teacher actually not on this show not on not at WRHU actually but just outside of my own life And they were saying, you know, the things that went, I can't even speak today, I apologize, but the safeguards that they are supposed to play, you know, as educators, as teachers, of seeing kids that are at risk of abusive situations and abusive relationships with their parents, they can't see that because it's on Zoom. And it's heartbreaking because those kids had a lifeline and it was taken away from them. And again, you know, I'm not here to say whether the, um, whether the the shutdowns or the mandates or the quarantines were a good thing or a bad thing politically or whatever. That's not my point, and, that, and honestly, that's kind of irrelevant. You know, what happen, what's happening is that kids aren't being given the resources that they need to be helped out of these abusive situations. I think that's, like you said, Nathan, I think that's a real tragedy of it all. Right. And, you know, I,
1: I mean, school, schools were able to give those those lifelines to children. It, rather it be just the counselor. People were better trained than they were when this initiative started in 1989. Uh Kids now have a lot more outlets to go through, you know, whether it be um, a phone call, uh, which obviously varies from child to child depending on what resources they have, uh, which is often dictated by their parents. Uh, But even in schools, I mean, counselors, uh, psychologists, nurses are better prepared to address those situations uh, of domestic violence, of abuse. And I think in that respect, it makes a situation a lot better, makes it seem like it's improving, but still uh, the pandemic certainly kind of exacerbated this issue
0: and taking away a lot of those resources for from kids, like you said. Absolutely. Just kids and people in general. And going back to the point of, you know, it being underreported, I think that that disparity is especially clear among male victims. You know, it's obviously clear in both genders. You know, I'm sure nobody is running to the phones to report that because of the nature of the crime, because of the threat of reprisal. But I feel like for um, males, it's a completely different story because, you know, there's this whole societal thing of, oh, you're not supposed to be abused. You know, you're manly, you're a guy, um, you're stronger. Why are you getting hit by this person, you know? And I feel like that adds a whole other layer to embarrassment to it. Um, And I'm, I'm not saying it's worse or better, you know, I feel like any kind of physical violence from one partner to another is just inexcusable. But I do think it adds this layer of embarrassment and this layer of sadness that I feel like As a society, we don't want to acknowledge as much as the next um, issues going on. So right now, coming up after this break, we have an interview with the director, executive director of Long Island Against Domestic Violence, Wendy Linsalata on 88.7 FM WRHU. We're back again on 88.7 FM WRHU. We're here with Wendy Linsalata, the executive director of Long Island Against Domestic Violence. Wendy, how are you this fine day? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. Um, we have a couple of questions to ask you, and I hope, and I'm sure, you're going to be a wonderful guest for us.
1: Yeah, So, so just to start off, uh, so talk through uh, talk through some of the statistics of domestic violence on long island. What are the what are the statistics?
3: Well, it's hard to give you clear statistics. Um, I was listening before I came on, and uh, you guys were talking about the issue of. Um, Domestic violence being very underreported, it's actually one of the most underreported crimes. Um, I could tell you that my organization, Ally Against Domestic Violence, we serve somewhere around six to eight thousand individuals a year. Um, that's only our organization I know the police departments respond to thousands of domestic incidents each year both Nassau and Suffolk County police Um, but again we know that the numbers that we're seeing at my organization the numbers that law enforcement is seeing that's only the tip of the iceberg there are thousands of people who are not reaching out for help for many different reasons. Um, You'll see statistics out there that read anywhere between one and four or one and three women will experience some form of violence in an intimate relationship throughout their lifetime. And that's actually correct. So instead of being able to give you a hard number, I think it's important for people, for everyone to understand that, this issue impacts everyone. And more likely than not, everybody knows somebody that's either currently in an abusive relationship or was in an abusive relationship. Uh they might not be aware of it, but this absolutely affects everybody.
0: So Wendy, I'm sure in the line of your work that you have to work with survivors of domestic violence and may still be in dangerous situations. So my question to you is, how important is subtlety and discretion, like even to people, like you said, that may know somebody that is affected by domestic violence, in talking Mm -hmm. to them and working with them to get out of their situation?
3: That's a great question, Matthew. It is, um, it's extremely important to be subtle. Um, Rule number one, that we tell everybody while it is, human nature that if a close friend or a family member discloses something to you or you suspect something or well, even if you pick up on something while you're in both parties presence I think human nature is that you want to automatically say something um, you know or intervene somehow but actually that could be dangerous so the first thing that we tell everyone is don't ever confront the other party and let them know that you know what's happening Um, Because that behind the scenes can put the survivor in way more danger than they're in already. So you have to be subtle. Um, How would a friend or family member address it? Speak to the person that they think is being abused privately. Get them alone. If you can go out somewhere with them. If you can talk to them on the phone when they're alone. And just express concern. And the biggest thing to remember is always help them and and keep reinforcing that this is not their fault and you're there to support them. You're not there to pass judgment. You're not there to tell them what to do. But you're there to help them learn and find out what resources are available to them. So for instance, you could be talking to a friend and, and you know that there's things going on in their relationship that's not healthy. You can talk with them about, Hey, you know, I've noticed X, Y, and Z. You know, I want to make sure that you're okay. Um, you know, your partner doesn't have a right to do these things to you. You know, there are resources, help them call our hotline, give them our 24 hour hotline number. And then, when we speak with them we operate in pretty much the same manner we just have the information that you know the general public don't have and we have the expertise to help them safely navigate through this and plan for their next steps as they are ready to go forward we're never going to tell somebody what they should be doing and they have to do something right now because right now might not be safe so we're going to meet everybody where they are we treat every person that contacts us on an individual basis we talk to them about all of their options and help them make an informed decision as to what they think is safest and best suited for their individual scenario even if that means that today they reach out to us on the hotline and they decide they don't want to do they don't want to go forward with any of the options that we've presented. That's okay. They know more today than they knew prior to reaching out to us. And we're always going to safety plan with them. and rule number one on that safety plan is to not tell their partner that they've been speaking with us. because you have to remember, domestic violence is based on power and control, right? So, if the survivor starts to take steps to remove themselves from the situation, they're basically reclaiming that power and control over their lives, which is a good thing. However, you have to remember that taking that control away from the offender increases the level of danger that the survivor is in.
1: Right. and what? So you were talking about the hotline, the 24-hour hotline. What other services does uh, Long Island Against Domestic Violence offer to Survivors or victims of domestic violence, and and what is the, what are the details of that hotline? Are there more hotlines out there uh, that people can contact uh, based on area?
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so we run our twenty four hour hotline. Um, that number is six three one six 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 eight eight three three. Anybody can call us for assistance, whether they're a survivor, um, they're a friend, they family member, they're a colleague, an employer, a doctor, a nurse. Um, Can call us for information callers can remain anonymous on our hotline again we're not here to pressure anyone into doing anything Um, so and that is run 24 hours a day seven days a week it is answered by our staff Um, there is another hotline in Nassau County um, run by the Safe Center Um, they operate their hotline the same way that we do But as far as what services my organization offers, I can only speak for my organization. Um, So in addition to the 24-hour hotline, we do have a domestic violence shelter for those who feel that remaining in their home is no longer safe for them. They've explored all other options, and it's just not safe for them to remain in the home. Our shelter can house 16 individuals. That's a combination of adults and children. And we are also the only domestic violence shelter on Long Island that accepts companion animals into the shelter. And we do that because we recognize there is a strong link between domestic violence and animal abuse. That's number one. So leaving the animal behind can actually put the animal in harm's way. One of the tactics, I know you were talking earlier, I was listening to the show about the many forms of domestic violence, Well, one of the forms it takes is to harm the family pet, and that's used as a means of manipulating and controlling the victim into staying. Mm -hmm. So we do allow companion animals in, um, and they are part of the family, so, you know, a lot of people decide not to go into a shelter because they don't want to leave their animal behind so we try to make every accommodation that we can um, people can stay in our shelter anywhere from 90 to 180 days during that time that they're there we help them with counseling services vocational services uh, financial supports we help them look for housing options because the whole goal is our program and all of the programs that we offer is to help virus go from a point of crisis to safety and self-sufficiency.
0: So, Ms. Salada, so that... Oh I apologize.
3: No,
0: go ahead. Um, we are wrapping up, but um, I want to ask you one last question before we end this interview because it's been such a wonderful interview, if that's all right with you. Mm-hmm. All right. So, what are some signs that may be indicative to a domestic violence situation that an average person can pick up? And are any of these signs easily missed?
3: Oh, absolutely. Some of the signs that a relationship may be abusive, a lot of times it may start off as looking like the person is very involved, very concerned, very jealous, um, extreme, but it's extreme, it's extreme jealousy that a lot of times is misconstrued as, oh, look, they're jealous. They want to be with me all the time. Um. You know, so it could be missed. It could be something subtle as why are you wearing that? You know, trying to control what the person's wearing, trying to control who they see, who they talk to. It starts out very slowly and subtly. Maybe having problems with the person's friend or family, finding fault with what the victim's support system actually to try to start chipping away at that. Um, you know, maybe verbal signs putting them down, minimizing them, um, you know, maybe calling them names. Um, You get into an argument, and instead of arguing in a healthy manner, you know, it becomes just an attack on the person. So there are subtle signs. I'll go as far as to say some people don't recognize that if somebody pushes you in your relationship, a physical push, many, many people may look the other way That's indicative of greater things to come, more severe things to come. So there's a lot of nuances there. And if you look at our website, we have a whole host of information on warning signs and how you can get help and all of the services that we offer. And, you know, we really encourage people to reach out for help. It's important that folks like you are talking about this and trying to get the word out there. And if I can, I just want to say, Everybody has a picture in their head of who's experiencing domestic violence. They view it as a married woman with children um, of a certain age range, a certain ethnic or cultural background, and that's not the case. Anybody can find themselves a victim. Teens are in abusive relationships. Adults are in abusive relationships. It knows no boundaries. It crosses all lines of culture, socioeconomic economic status, education level, Um, every neighborhood on Long Island, every neighborhood in the United States, there are issues of domestic violence. So it's important that everybody understand that. And Uh, there's no shame in asking for help. Absolutely.
0: Well, thank you, Ms. Linsalata, for speaking with us today. It's been a wonderful discussion, and um, I'm really glad we could have you uh, on the show, and so is Nathan. All right,
3: thanks so much, guys. Have a good day.
0: Thank you. You too. Thank you. That was Wendy Linsalata, the executive director of Long Island Against Domestic Violence, a nonprofit organization, again, designed to combat domestic violence on Long Island. I think that was a wonderful interview. I think she made quite a few good points, especially in regards to, like I said, um, everyone has this image of a domestic violence survivor in a domestic violence situation when it could really, unfortunately, happen to all of us. Um, coming up next, we're going to have a story about the Women's Rights March that took place in Mineola yesterday. What happened there and what the greater implications of that are, you're going to have to stick around to see on 88.7 FM WRHU. We're back again on 88.7 FM WRHU. I'm Matt McDermott, and with Nathan Ritchie and reporter Matthew Di that's going to be coming up later on a wonderful story about the Britney Spears conservatorship on Hofsha's morning wake up call. Nathan, I understand you have a story for us about the women's rights march that took place on Mineola.
1: Yes, I do. A women's rights march took place in Mineola Friday uh, amid the abortion policy in Texas, uh, which threatens a woman's right to choose. It was uh, uh, instated to uh, put restrictions on abortion uh, up to six weeks into pregnancy. uh, And it was signed by, uh, of course, Texas Governor Greg Abbott uh, in May of 2021. And it uh, it sparked a lot of uproar, a lot of ra- a lot of rallies all over the nation, uh, which also happened uh, in spouts um, across the nation on on over this past weekend. But they've been happening all month, uh, all of this past uh, half year, uh, and the Supreme Court and certain district courts around the nation have also heard arguments over the passing of the bill. Uh, Rather, it betrays the decision of uh, the 1974 Roe v. Wade decision, Uh, and uh, they're still having these arguments about that, so that's something that's really developing and we'll have to touch upon uh, at a later date. Uh, But for right now, Mineola protesters on Friday called for the Supreme Court uh, and other district courts, of course, uh, to protect Roe v. Wade, to codify it uh, and that decision. Uh, so to kind of complicate the passage of these kind of bills in the future uh, that restrict abortion and other reproductive rights, other women's rights uh, with regard to to reproduction. Uh, and protesters also were reportedly worried that the law will spread to other states, which I think really brings up a great question. Will it actually spread to other states? Do we have the – do we does it have the criteria to –
0: Um, spread to other states, is that really a threat that we can talk about? You know, I'm definitely not a political scientist, um, but I can give my thought on it. (laughs) Um, Do I think that we're in danger of it, of um, restricted abortion access knocking on our door in New York? No. I think that it really is a state to state thing, because in some states, it's very much, you know, kind of a norm. And it's kind of the majority of the population views it as something that should be accessible to most people or to everybody, depending on which state or which uh, population or culture you live in. And then to other states, you know, I think it's quite the contrary. I think that a lot of other states, especially in the Deep South, and especially in more, even within states and more rural parts of the country, it's viewed as a very much an evil. It's viewed as this concept of killing a baby, you know, right or wrong, and they want it stopped um, without nuance and without um, controversy. And I think that's what we saw in texas you know with the everything above six weeks you can't forget a legal abortion so my answer to your question is do i think it's going to happen in new york say no do i think that in mississippi they should be keeping an eye on that yeah you know and in one way or another because i think it's more likely to happen in one of those states with a with a more rural population that unfortunately may not be um educated that may lean more to the republican party as far as political leanings go and may kind of have more of those evangelical leanings than in the North, where we, when we do have leanings, tend to be um, pr- um, Catholic or mainline Protestant, both of which don't take as quite of a hardline stance against it. Definitely a stance against it, but they don't take quite as a hardline stance against it as a lot of evangelical churches in the Deep South.
1: Right, and, and yeah, that's something the protesters were talking about, is the the fear that it will spread to other states, mainly neighboring states of Texas, where abortion... Restrictions are already kind of prevalent uh, in states like you're talking, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, those states. Uh, and will it? M- my thought is b- we don't really have much to worry about being in New York or being in the Northeast. But I think there's certainly something there, especially in the rural counties of New York or of these Northeastern states. Um, there's definitely more of a, a prevalent voice in, in anti-abortion than we think in these states.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, if you go up, you know, I mean, up to Albany, I'd say it's pretty um, not monolithic, but it's pretty much, you know, not much of a different culture than you would have it um, down in Long Island, say, um, right. where I grew up in um, Suffolk County. I mean, uh, Nathan, you grew up upstate. You grew up in um, Rochester, right?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Monroe County,
0: uh, which is Rochester and the surrounding area. So what would you say your experience was like? Because um, I grew up downstate. You know, uh, Matthew, who we're going to be speaking to later, um, again, shout out to you, but you grew up downstate as well. So, Nathan, as someone who grew up upstate, you know, in the difference between us and then our other reporter, Ryan Pagano, what do you think of these measures? Not necessarily abortion measures, but like, what do you think of what you've seen like the sentiment up there in Monroe County around um, not only abortion, but um, political issues in general. Like where does it skew one way or another?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Monroe County is for a while it was seen as like the only red county in a blue state, which mm. is not the case anymore because a lot of New York is actually pretty
0: red. Yeah. I mean, um, like I said, I grew up in Suffolk County. Suffolk County went red. Yeah, um, exactly. For two years in a row. I think maybe three years. I'm not sure what it went in 2012, but I know it went red in 2016 and it went red in uh, 2020. Yeah, right. And I think this kind of speaks, you know, not to get it completely off topic, but I think this does kind of speak to the thing that we've been talking about on the show and the thing that everybody on the show, I feel like, has been talking about in their own show since January 6th, 2021. And that is the divide that is present in rural parts of this, in the country, as opposed to other parts of the country. You know, Matthew said it earlier in the show about parts of the country completely leaning one way and another way and not seeing the same not coming to the same conclusion despite working with the same information because of their political exactly. leanings one way or another. So that's the thing that's going to push forward coming back to the to the main point. I think this is the thing that's going to push forward this legislation. You know, on the grassroots level at least. And I'm curious to see um in one way or another if local governments, not even state governments, but local governments like say um um, I'm making up this county, but I don't know which political leaning it lies, but I know it's pretty far upstate, like Rensselaer County or Franklin County, say, upstate, are going to lean regarding this issue and going to lean, if they're, go, if they're going to put restrictions of their own local restrictions, you know, like, oh, you know, you can't do this in Franklin County. You're going to have to go to Monroe County. In the And that'd be the equivalent of like, oh, you can't do this in Nassau County, which I'm not saying is going to happen because Nassau County is pretty reliably blue and even in Suffolk County because that's not really an evangelical area. But, you know... That would be the equivalent of, you know, you can't get an abortion in Nassau County. You're going to have to go to Suffolk County. So I'm curious to see if that's going to happen.
1: Right, yeah. That would be a very interesting development. And and like we were talking about with with rural areas and the barrier there, there's such an information barrier. Even as simple as, like, people don't have as good of an internet in a rural community than uh, an urban community would or a suburban com- community would. And that creates... At a smaller level than just plain old political, um, inform like information bias mm-hmm. creates. Uh, but regarding the regarding abortion, as in having to go to another county, I mean, I think in a state, New York isn't that big, right? But it's still a big state. Mm-hmm. And depending on what counties would allow abortion, what counties would you know, disallow it or highly discourage it, that would create uh, an even more complicated uh, barrier of not only information of, but access to
0: uh, abortion. No, absolutely. I think that your point, all your points are good, but I especially like the one about, um, you know, the information disparity even between rural and urban counties in the United States. Like we have parts of the country that really haven't had a significant government overhaul in terms of technology, in terms of, the things that they need to function in today's society since uh, Roosevelt lit up the Tennessee Valley in the 30s, which is really a sad thought, but that's the point. You know, all this information disparity kind of does create a feedback loop and lead to these laws that, you know, to a lot of people in New York state seem insane. And then to some people, you know, in Tennessee seem perfectly valid, perfectly fine. And I'm not saying which one of those is right, which one of those is wrong. You know, I have my own opinions on the matter, but that's not my, that's not my place to tell people, you know, you're insane, but- that's just kind of telling of the issue itself. Nathan, I do want to bring up one thing. What do you think is going to happen in terms of abortions in Texas? Do you think they're going to continue happening, but on a not safe level and on an illicit level? Or do you think that the overall rate of abortions is going to decline? Because my personal thought is, you know, like gun legislation, like drugs legislation, it's only going to cause people to go to other sources to get the, the um product or good or service that they want to maintain or they want to obtain so that's just going to lead to a lot of people getting sick or being killed for you know i don't want to say political grandstanding because for some people this is a very valid belief and a very deep belief but i do think it's a sad point that a lot of people are going to pass away because they're going to get these services illicitly so nathan i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this
1: right and this kind of ties in with what we were talking about with the abortion laws Spreading to other states if they're not going to spread to other states uh, in the same way that Texas has instated this law then it's really going to have a little effect on abortion rates as a whole Uh, If you know you have the same populations of people having you know unsafe recreational sex like, like I mean People are going to find a way to get an abortion if they really want to. I mean, in this day and age when we have ev- everything we want basically at our fingertips, uh, and it's so accessible to a lot of us, then it's going. people are going to find a way. Just like you said, with drugs, with guns, with, I don't know, with with
0: anything else that would be— That's al- outlawed. <laughs> and right. There's illegal... a demand for it. Exactly. No, I agree with you there. And I think you made another... You brought up something that I kind of want to elaborate on too. And that is, um, you know, safe... You mentioned um, recreational sex in those states is kind of remaining on the same level as in other states. Exactly. I want to talk about sex ed in Texas because in Texas, sex ed is not required by law for for schools to teach. When schools do choose to teach it, it is required by law that they teach abstinence as the preferred measure. So, you know... Abstinence is obviously the only way to protect against these things 100%, but it's also not very realistic. You know, studies show that the average American loses his or her virginity around the age of 17. So chances are a lot of these kids that are being exposed to sex ed and uh, abstinence-only sex ed are are sexually active. And I think that's kind of um, a sad – not a sad thing, but I think it's scary when you look at everything surrounding the um, controversy. Because if you're being taught abstinence-only, you're not being taught about other methods of, like you said, safe sex – you know of of using contraception in one way or another. So I think that's an interesting point to make, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on if texas if Texas's sex ed laws and sex ed programs are going to lead to kind of a feedback loop where this becomes more of a problem than it would be in, say, um New York or Massachusetts. Yeah,
1: I mean, I mean there's it's pretty rampant throughout the South. I mean, there's a lot of uh, consistencies. In lawmaking, in what there is uh, within the uh, Southern United States and within the Northern United States, and I mean, sex ed is one of those things within public schools and private schools, is that it's not being taught at the level that we know. That there are multiple ways to to be to have contraception, to you know, have safe sex, and, and I mean, that I think that's another kind of indication that. Uh, maybe religion, uh, evangelism is more
0: uh, deep, deeply rooted within culture in, the s- in southern United States. Absolutely. I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to keep an eye on, you know, as a department and as a show looking forward, you know, how this oh, yeah. Texas um, abortion legislation works out and if it goes to other states and if it's repealed and all these things that are what-ifs right now. Uh, Coming up right after this break, we're going to have our reporter, Matthew Dominico talk about the Britney Spears conservatorship coming to an end. We can't wait to hear it, and I'm sure you can either, on 88.7 FM WRHU. We're back again on 88.7 FM WRHU, Radio Hofstra University. I'm Matt McDermott speaking with my co-host, Nathan Ritchie, and our reporter, Matthew Dominico who spoke at a really good point earlier in the show and is going to be continuing to speak on really good points with his story. So, Matthew, why don't you introduce the story and take it away?
2: Well, thank you very much, Matt. Um, so, Britney Spears' conservatorship overseen by her father, Jamie Spears, has come to an end after 13 years. On Wednesday, September 29th, a judge suspended the conservatorship, described by Britney as being abusive, and has given the role of conservator to someone personally picked by the 2000s pop icon. This decision is being celebrated by hashtag free Britney supporters everywhere after advocating for her freedom, which was seemingly repressed for the past decade. Concern from her supporters began to arise when posts from her social media came across as cries for help, while details of her father's control over her finances and more began to leak through. But before I get into, uh, get into that, I think it's necessary to give a bit of background info. In the mid to late 2000s, Britney Spears, still one of the hottest pop stars on the planet, was grabbing a lot of attention, but not for her chop chart-topping albums or hit singles. She became the center of a media circus, with paparazzi following her every move and her personal life put on display for everyone to see. The tipping point was arguably when she shockingly decided to shave her head in 2007, and shortly after that, Britney would have a filmed outburst, which saw her damage a reporter's car with an umbrella and quickly drive away from the scene. And it was at this time where people began to question and even make sport of her mental well-being. A year later, with uh, Britney's decline going... uh, um, even further downward, so far, um, so far as her having to be hospitalized against her will, her father Jamie was granted a temporary conservatorship of his daughter, which meant that he gained control over her person and her sta- her estate, despite Britney's wishes. Soon, the conservatorship was made permanent, and so began Jamie Spears' strict control over her life. So essentially a decade later, the public has been let in on what exactly has been transpired under this conservatorship, and with gruesome details being revealed by Hulu's Framing Britney Spears documentary as well as Controlling Britney Spears, some disturbing information has been brought to the surface. According to the documentaries, Britney was kept under incredibly close surveillance, with virtually all her whereabouts being known by her father and those employed by him. Despite being worth $60 million, her finances were heavily restricted and was frequently denied indulgent purpo- uh, purchases. Her relationship with close family and friends was blocked off much of the time and her ass- access to her own two children was allegedly threatened by Jamie himself. And when the Free Britney movement began to build momentum, Jamie Spears made repeated attempts to stifle it, going so far as to send Britney and her boyfriend, Sam Asgeri, out to prove fans that she was all right. There's much more that has been brought to light, but but on Wednesday the 29th, Uh, the decision has been made for Jamie to be removed from the conservatorship role. And Britney herself appears to be celebrating while also taking time to heal as she posted on Instagram. But the two questions that come to mind for me are, is legal action going to be taken against Jamie Spears? And are there more situations like this happening right now in the music slash entertainment industry that we don't know about?
0: I think that's a um, really good point to end the report on because... We don't know. That's the point, you know, and that's a scary point because like we were talking about with domestic violence even, there are so many of these types of situations going on across the United States and across the planet, unfortunately, that we just don't know about and we have no control to stop. We have have power in certain individual cases to enforce rules and to enforce law and to help people. But unfortunately, you know, with the resources that we have, it's going to be a very difficult uphill battle. Um, The one thing I will say is I'm curious... As to if this wasn't Britney Spears, and I know the answer to this already, but if this wasn't Britney Spears and she wasn't already such a well-known pop icon, would she have still gotten the same sympathy and the same attention if she was someone else that went through the same thing, same exact concept, but wasn't famous, wasn't rich? And, you know, I'm not saying that she doesn't deserve sympathy because, you know, everybody who's going through any mental illness deserves a lot of sympathy, deserves a lot of leeway. But I'm curious as to why we don't give that same leeway to people who aren't as, I don't wanna say well off because of the details that you just mentioned, Matthew, but as a wealthy and as prominent as Britney Spears.
2: Well, I think the fact of the matter is, um, I think if it weren't for Britney Spears having all this notoriety and a very loyal and um, outspoken fan base, I truly think this would have been kept under the rug. But as far as Britney's case is concerned, even going back to um, 2007, 2006, before this conservatorship was even put in place, uh, Britney's mental health was, you know, the was covering tabloids all over the country and I don't think was given proper respect. Uh, heck, you know, on as shown on the documentary her um her outbursts and what you know what she was doing in her personal life was even made sport of on game shows and And um, I truly think that um, hopefully now with mental health becoming a lot less of a taboo than it was a decade ago, that uh, respect to what celebrities are going through on a day-to-day basis with their personal lives and everything that just comes with being a person on this planet will hopefully be given a little more respect and treated with a a little more class. But, um, you know, luckily now... um, the situation the details of it are being you know um have been released to the public and um the the question you know that I posed is are ramifications going to be um going to be sent the way of um one Jamie Spears for all the things that he allegedly has done under this conservatorship and um, that's what I'm really um, interested in seeing
1: of course yeah and I mean we've seen even when we were talking about domestic violence and, and, and how social media has had such an impact on speaking out, on normalizing speaking out, etc. It's the same case here uh, in that multimedia has kind of helped bring attention to her case, and I mean it, it has helped her a bunch that she is a public person with a fan base with uh, prior, well, prior to her pred- uh, predicament. And uh, you know, with the Netflix documentary and and other uh, New, the New York Times article that came out, uh, she has had a lot of uh, means of of publicizing this, and I think, uh, as as Matthew Domenico was talking about, uh, with uh, how sorry I'm forgetting uh, what I was about to say, but anyway, no worries, happens to the best of us. I have yeah yeah a lot of things are. are going through my mind right now but as for the fate of Jamie Spears I think well there are already being a lot of um, invest a lot of talk as as far as the investigation goes into Jamie Spears I, I think we will see uh, ramifications done with him uh, because he allegedly subjected her to video surveillance and cell phone surveillance uh, which in California where she lives that's seen as a violation of California's two-party consent law, uh, and obviously invasion of privacy, which brings up another question: Is that so? For like you, Matt, uh, Matt McDermott. Again, I'm differentiating Matt. Yeah. uh I can't wait for the day where it's two Nathans in here. And I don't want yeah. to do that. <laughs> exactly.
0: But it's like watching like two clones <laughs> on the other end. And, yeah. Exactly. Yep.
1: But anyway, is that so? For people that are going through. A, the same case, but don't have the notoriety, maybe are in a one cons- one party consent state like New York. What is the deal with that?
0: What are the ramifications for that? That's exactly what I was going to bring up, Nathan, and I'm <laughs> glad you did, because that's a really important point to make. You know, people, if this had happened, if Britney Spears had lived in New York state, she might not have had the legal recourse that she did in California to be removed from the conservatorship. And this whole case might have gone in a different direction. Because like you said, Nathan, uh, New York state is a one party consent. So if I'm talking to you, I could record you and you could just not know because I'm technically in the video. You know, it's I have I'm consenting to it because I'm one of the people speaking. So I have the consent to record this conversation. You don't. But that's irrelevant because it's a one party consent state. And I think that's a really good point to make. I think, you know, going back to you, Matthew DiDomenico, (laughs) going back to your point, I think that's a good point to make, too, because I remember when I was a kid, you know, I was, I think, six years old when Britney Spears, that whole thing about her shaving her head and attacking the paparazzi car with the umbrella, that whole thing came into um, public focus. And I remember that. That was such a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody remembers that. And even people from our generation who were five or six when that did happen. And I remember people talking about it and trash talking her and saying all these mean, mean, horrible things about her. Which, you know, in retrospect, knowing what we know about, about mental illness and knowing what we know now about people that are in that kind of distress, we can say she was having a mental breakdown. She was having a reaction to a lot of stress that was being heaped on her by a bunch of con- sources that she couldn't control. But back then, we didn't have the, that kind of terminology to, to define that. All we saw was, oh, wow, that celebrity that, has, that seemingly has everything is going crazy and attacking paparazzi with an umbrella and shaving her head. So that's a really sad role to see how far we progressed in those years. And what's really
2: crazy for me is the fact that um, prior to, um, prior to watching uh, these documentaries and, and really going uh, in detail and looking um, as to far um, as far as what has transpired in this conservatorship and kind of, you know, taking a retrospective on uh, Britney Spears career and her relationship with the media and, you know, I guess what has been what we've been able to see um, as a public viewing audience, um, I've really I, I kind of turned a blind eye to the uh, free Britney moment uh, movement at the time. It really didn't um, I really didn't go into it as, as far as, you know, I feel like I, I, I should have now in retrospective. But what I guess the um, the main thing, my main takeaway from this whole um, this whole experience, uh, I guess you can call it, is that we um, now still should really you know of course you know with mental health being a lot less of a taboo as i mentioned earlier i think we should be a lot more um understanding and empathetic towards not just what celebrities are going through but what people are going through in general as far as their personal lives um you know there's there's uh, so many factors that we as you know people do not have control over and i think that um a lot of empathy is um is an order to be taken you know not just you know towards you know celebrities but towards you know our neighbors and um people who have a lot um going on in their lives so you know i really you know hope this britney um this this britney story uh can be a learning moment for a lot of people watching and and tuning in to you know what has happened to her over the past you know 10 years and even before the conservatorship with you know the media kind of you know taking um taking liberties with her and and um, making uh, a circus out of her personal life absolutely
0: i think you made a really good point about just how far you know we're certainly not perfect right now as far as mental health awareness and stuff like that goes but we've certainly gone so far even in our lifetime i mean when i was a kid you know like probably um fifth grade and before i used to be a very anxious kid you know i was very i used to cry in class a lot because i was just scared and nervous about everything and my teachers would take me outside of the classroom and yell at me while I was crying because it was disrupting the class. And that's like inconceivable now, and I'm so glad for that because that was such 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 a horrible feeling when I was a kid. So it's just crazy to think about that and how far we've progressed. And you know, we're not perfect, and I'm I'm not certainly perfect either, because I remember talking about the Free Britney thing, the controversy when it when it first started breaking. And like you, Matthew, DiDomenico, I wasn't <laughs> as invested in it as a lot of people were and i was talking to my partner about it and i said something to the effect of, why does everybody care about this person she has everything she has all the money because i didn't know about any of this you know i didn't know about her not having control over finances and all this and i didn't i knew about it maybe but it didn't like sink in the gravity of it all so i was like i mean obviously i had sympathy for her because her mental state was suffering but you know i back then i was kind of like you know Oh, boo-hoo, you know, the person who's worth $60 million is is being controlled tightly. But now we know that wasn't like that. You know, now we know she was under constant surveillance, you know, under all these measures that seem insane now. So I feel like as everybody's opinion of this has progressed, that's become a good thing. And I think, you know, most of the time we talk about indicative things on the show, it's about bad indications. I think this is a good indication that everybody's awareness of mental health is going forward.
1: Exactly. And I think mental health is being normalized as we speak and I think that uh her case has certainly accelerated that movement. And I think our generation in general in helping bring awareness to this situation has also helped that. I think, you know, T shirts were made, like free like hashtag free Britney, that whole yeah. thing. Even that, as small a thing that that seems oh she, he's wearing a T shirt. it's like people know about that. People people can find out about it. people can look it up now people, like They're raising awareness exactly Absolutely. just awareness is uh, a huge thing uh that she didn't have any of it in, in 2006 and 7 and when you don't have that when you don't have outlets that you can reach out to to express your mental health or to you know exhibit symptoms of mental health of mental health disorder then you 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 know you find a way to express that out in the world and that's what her you know breakdown was
2: and uh, on a final note, uh, a question I'd like to pose, you know, obviously that we don't have time to answer now, but a question that I'd like to pose would be um, is, you know, this as far as, um, as, 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 far as um, this treatment that um, Britney Spears has got, had, to, had to go through through her conservatorship, would the same, um, I guess, would the same treatment be done towards a male celebrity, or male singer, is, is what, really what I would um, uh, like to, to ask because um, you know who, who knows in, in that situation.
0: I think that this is a really good example of wrapping everything up in a neat little bow because at the beginning we were talking about male victims of domestic violence, and now we're talking about um, the perception of males as far as mental health goes. Both are very important to talk about, not only in terms of gender, but in terms of just people. Right. And I think it's really good that we're addressing this on the show in one way or another, and I think this is a really important show to have because we talked about a lot of really deep issues and oh, yeah. a lot of good things that we touched on. Unfortunately, The time for our show is running short. Um, It's been a pleasure doing the show with you guys today. Do you either have anything to add?
2: Top of the morning to (laughs) you.
0: There we go, because it's a morning show. (laughs) What (laughs) a wonderful time. Uh, Nathan, uh, it's been great to have you as well every week. Do you have anything to add? Uh, It's just
1: been great. Uh, Had a lot of fun on the show today. Uh, Really good issues that we're talking about. Uh, Things that I'm passionate about personally, and I know we had a lot to say and even more, but we don't have time, unfortunately. So hopefully we can pick
0: this up at a later date. Absolutely. And it's been a wonderful show. You're listening to Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call with Matt McDermott, Nathan Ritchie, and Matthew DiNomenico, only here on 88.7 FM WRHU.